Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we continue our reflections into the gospel that we will hear on Sunday, this great solemnity of Pentecost. And given the fact that we are going to be talking the stuff of Pentecost, we will speak to the gospel for sure, but we are also going to get into our second reading, which will have us in the second chapter of Acts. Of course, there you have the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, uh, the birth of the church, as many of us know. So lots to talk about this evening. We will go ahead and just jump right into today's gospel. If you have your Bibles out there, and if you want to turn to John chapter 20, John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Amen. So, just a a few quick pieces by way of biblical theology. You know, this language of he breathed on them, uh, as many of us know, this certainly anticipates the coming of Pentecost, which at this point hasn't happened yet, right? This he breathed on him. John uses an expression that recurs in significant context in the Greek Old Testament. Once again, my dear friends, it is so important to be constant in how we read the New Testament. If we want to dip into the richness that is the New Testament, we should always have in our rear view mirror the Old Testament, huh? So as to better understand how Christ not only fulfills the Old Testament, but at the same time transforms it and perfects it. As the great church fathers remind us to read the old in light of the new, and the new in light of the old is how to read the Bible. Okay, 73 books, not just 46, not just 27, uh, not just books 30 to 39, or, or just the Gospels. No. To better understand how God has worked in salvation history, you read the Bible like you would read any book from the beginning, from the beginning. And when you do so, what you come to appreciate when you get to the New Testament is the richness of the gospel text, the richness of the epistles, the richness of the book of Revelation. Mindful that God, is, as the great author, comes full circle, because certainly there is a lot of similarities between the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation, as we have discussed in great depth over the years. So very important, and I reinforce it here again, because in this passage, 
to appreciate the unity of the two Testaments, to appreciate the way in which we are to read the Bible in this kind of intelligible coordination, one discovers the richness of this text because the breathing on them, it appears weird. But in Genesis 2, 7, where the Lord breathes life into Adam, in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 21, where the Greek version specifies that Elijah resuscitated a boy with what? His breath. And how about the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 37, verse 9, where God raises an army of corpses to new life by the what? The breath of the Spirit. The breath of the Spirit. Remember, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Spirit, uh, the Greek word pneuma, lung, breath, uh, wind, right? There's a new wind. There's a new breath, okay? Because there's a new Adam, a new humanity. So rich. So rich. And of course, he gives them the power of the Holy Spirit to do what? Well, what does verse 23 say? Forgive the sins. Our Lord's ministry of mercy and reconciliation here, we are made to see, will continue through the apostles. Certainly we can go to James 5, verses 14 to 15, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, this ministry of forgiveness of sins. The power to forgive and retain sins in the name of Jesus is elsewhere described, huh? as the authority to do what? Bind and loose. We not only, my dear friends, read the new in light of the old, but the new in light of the new. What do I mean? In light of what's technically called the analogy of faith, you read a particular text in the New Testament with, again, in the rearview mirror, the other evangelists, the other inspired texts. And when you do that, you get a deeper sense of the ordered whole. All right. As it relates to this passage in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23, historically speaking, it was the Council of Trent which connected this episode with the institution of the sacrament of confession, by which Christ, again, distributes forgiveness to the world through the successors of the apostles, also known as bishops, and their assistance in the presbyterate, of course, the elders in the Greek in the New Testament text is presbyteroi. This is where we get the word priest. Okay, so all very important. Now, I want to go back into this text and focus in on a word that we've talked about before, but I want to put it in the context, well, of this particular text. And it's the word shalom. It's the word shalom. Shalom to this day is the most common everyday greeting in Israel. You know, the reason Jesus greets his friends twice in this text, huh? Straight off with the expression, peace be with you. You know, wishing each other peace is certainly a lovely thing to do, which is that much more easily understood and makes better sense when it is done in a world full of hatred, terror, and the absence of peace, okay? It expresses a deep longing for peace, which is, of course, constantly struggling against new setbacks each and every day, new disappointments each and every day. This weekend, 50 days after Easter, on the Feast of Pentecost, with which the season of Easter ends, 
we hear once more what about the risen Christ's first meeting with his disciples. And in this brief account, we see a strong and substantial response to our longing for peace. So the question must be asked, how? And in what sense does Jesus bring peace with him? So that one like the Apostle Paul will say later that Christ himself is our peace. We find in today's text a miserable handful of fearful, dejected disciples of Jesus. They have, for all intents and purposes, barricaded themselves, probably in the room where the Last Supper was held, which the irony is so thick. So they've barricaded themselves behind bar doors on account of what? A justifiable fear that someone might come and arrest them for being among the friends of the man who was what? Crucified, right? And suddenly, Jesus was there. No walls, no doors, no locks or bolts offer any obstacle to him. Maybe they were terrified for a moment when he was suddenly standing in their midst. Yet his greeting, what? Shalom, brings them peace. And straight after that, certainly, as we read in indescribable joy, I pause on this truth that no walls, no doors, no locks or bolts offer any obstacle to him. Because we have a tendency to put up barriers. But what does he do? He finds a way to get through those barriers. And how does he do it? In this imposing way where he busts through the walls, he busts through the doors, he busts through the barriers. No, he gently because this is the way Jesus operates. He gently appears, and in that gentleness, he invites, and in that unimposing way, he proposes truth and love. And he says, peace be with you. You know, people have continued to find this peace and joy ever since those first 50 days. The presence of Jesus means peace and joy. But know that when we talk about peace and joy, we're not talking about something that is just purely sentimental. No, a peace and joy that comes from a very real personal relationship with Jesus Christ that demands sacrifices, that demands our witness to what he talked about. Truth. Remember the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, yes. And what does he say at the end of the Beatitudes? You will take up my name, and you will be persecuted. But this will be your joy. This will be your peace. So, how does this all come about? The gospel here gives us a clue. First of all, Jesus shows them his hands and his side. That is, the traces of his wounds, the wounds of the nails in his hands, that of the spear deep in his side, right to his heart. Jesus is alive, but the wounds are still visible. Not as scars, but as if luminescent, transfigured. What is the message here? Well, what was I just talking about? If we wish to know the stuff of the transfiguration, we must know the cross. This is why our Lord appears 
on the mountain transfigured before Peter, James, and John, right? Because right after the transfiguration, where does he go? But to the cross. And so he says, if you wish to know the light of truth, the light of love, the light of the Father, you must also know the cross. And here, he wants us to see that there is illumination, there is luminescence on the other side of our crosses. What Jesus wants us to see is that if we are going to attain the beatific vision, that is seeing God face to face, then we must first pick up our cross and follow him. This is a difficult task for all of us, but it is this uh, great invitation. It's an invitation because Jesus here is reminding us that there is something beautiful that awaits you. Persevere. Be steadfast, as James reminds us. Live and work and sacrifice with the end in mind, not as an end in of itself. If you do that, you'll become nothing but, as one von Balthasar says, an anthropological frustration. That is to say, you will have no peace. No peace. Often, in life, when someone has passed through a great sorrow, there comes a profound peace. The wounds are there, but they no longer hurt. Rather, they are shining like almost something precious. Anyone out there who has undergone such an experience and has matured and, and grown as, as a result will look back on such difficult moments with what? But gratitude gratitude. And when you do look back in gratitude, certainly you are sharing in the life of the resurrection. There's something else here that really strikes me. Jesus makes no reproach to the apostles. When Cardinal Schoenborn really highlights this in one homily he gave, he makes no reproach to the apostles. Why did you abandon me? Why did you run away like cowards? Is this the gospel message? No. Jesus brings peace by not pinning us down to our failures, but by granting us the chance to start again. Start again. And praise be Jesus Christ for that great truth. From one minute to the next, from one hour to the next, from one day to the next, he always provides for us a new start. And isn't that a great grace? How many situations there are in which peace is possible only if a new start is truly made. And he's saying to all of us here in this gospel, start again, start again. Now, at Easter, what Jesus brings makes such a new start possible, and that is the Holy Spirit and the aforementioned forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit whom Jesus vouchsafed to the apostles at Easter and the whole church this Sunday is the power behind all of our new starts, if you will. He makes courageous witnesses out of the fearful disciples and, and out of a scared church, shielding herself from the world. He makes a lively and open community. That is how the spirit of Jesus works to this day, always surprising us with something new. 
How many of us have thought to ourselves on more than one occasion that God's ways are not our ways? I think we've all thought that at one point in our life, and if we haven't, we should, because that's the reality. I speak to this because God is very unconventional, right? (laughs) He surprises us with the way in which He uses something or someone to draw us closer to Him. And when He does that, He wants us to see that He longs to be in relationship with us. And when we respond to Him, as we've really been hitting it hard recently, we are simply responding to what He has already initiated in our hearts by a singular grace, by a singular knock. Right? Now, as it relates to this piece, above all, given the context of this double shalom, this double peace being the forgiveness of sins, Can we not say that we find that deep, deep peace coming out from the sacrament of confession? Jesus brought this gift with him on Easter Day, and he's the one who is the bearer of this peace, the dispenser of this peace. Wherever God's forgiveness is brought to bear among men, that is when the everyday greeting becomes a living reality. Shalom peace. Every time we leave the confessional, hopefully we are imbued with this deep sense of shalom. Remember what this word means, covenant harmony with God, to be ordered with and in God, to be restored in God, to be made what? Anew, right? To be made anew. Remember the great passage that comes to us from the book of Revelation, behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21.5. My dear friends, that includes you and I, (laughs) each and every day to the degree that we are willing. Okay, so we've talked about how the Holy Spirit makes this possible. I do want to get into this great event at least a little bit. That is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I will read chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. When the day of Pentecost had come, They were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Mm. Amen. So, (laughs) what does this mean? It's really interesting when you uh, break this passage down. Once again, to read this passage well is to read it with the backdrop of the Old Testament, right? Where the loud and fiery descent of the Spirit 
here recalls the loud and fiery descent of Yahweh on Mount Sinai during the events of Exodus, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Once again, my friends, the Holy Spirit is the founding gift of the new covenant and the soul that animates the body of the Christian community. When we talk about Pentecost as the birthday of the church, it is because the Holy Spirit is given as the great and first gift to this new church, this new covenant Christian community. Because it is the Holy Spirit who directs the missionary efforts of the church, guides her leadership in truth, and sanctifies her life through the sacraments. It's fascinating, this use of other tongues, uh, foreign languages, does this not echo the events of the tragedy of Babel, where God used multiple languages to confuse and to scatter the family of man. Here, here, the Spirit uses multiple languages to do what? Communicate the gospel and gather together the family of God. What's the distinction? What's the difference? Well, one was man-initiated, right? Minus God. The other, here, the events in the upper room was God-initiated. It was time to restore the family of God. You know, my dear friends, anytime I talk about the unity of the old and new, I do find myself moved personally by that great overarching truth that God is a Father who keeps His promises. All the way back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we have the story of creation. We have the story of the fall. And in Genesis 3.15, what do we have? The Proto-Evangelion, that is to say, the first gospel, the first piece of good news after the fall, the tragic fall. And what was that piece of good news? That there will be a seed that comes from a woman, and that seed, that offspring that comes from the woman will defeat the seed of the world, the seed of the adversary, sin. And to know that we belong to that great story going all the way back to Adam and Eve, is to know that God is not only a father who keeps his promises, he does so because he wants us to share in the greatness of this love, in the greatness of this mercy. Amen. Now, as we focus in on the Holy Spirit a little bit, I want to turn to John 14 and some of our Lord's words. We actually read these oh, a few months back, I believe. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14, verses uh, 25 and following. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now listen to what he says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So here he speaks to the Holy Spirit as the counselor. The Greek here is parakletos, literally means advocate or helper. The word is, is actually used five times in John's writings, always with reference to Jesus or the Holy Spirit. What's interesting here is the Greek parakletos is a legal term for an attorney or spokesman who defends the cause of the accused in a courtroom. 
What is going on here? Jesus uses it for a heavenly intercessor who is called to the side of God's children to offer what? Strength and support. Jesus certainly is a paraclete because in heaven he pleads to the Father for believers still struggling here on earth. The Holy Spirit, too, is a paraclete because he is sent to strengthen the disciples in our Lord's absence and to instruct us, as we've already noted, in truth. And he helps defend us against the prosecutions of the adversary. If we were to go to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 10, the devil is identified as the accuser. This is one of his functions. The other day we were talking about he is one who obstructs and opposes, throwing something in the middle of the road. Well, as the devil, he is also the accuser, constantly accusing us of a wrongdoing. So it is right that Jesus Christ gives us the parakletos, an advocate, a helper, our spiritual lawyer, if you will. This is what the Holy Spirit is. Yes, that's right. The Holy Spirit is our spiritual lawyer because the Holy Spirit is one who is constantly defending us against the accuser. He is one who is our advocate, coming to our aid, flying to our aid, helping us in our every need. All we need to do, as our Lord reminds us in Matthew 7, verse 7, is to ask, seek, and knock. And I will give you all of your heart's desire. Paul reminds us, just ask. Ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be bold in your requests. He will come to your aid. He desires to come to your aid. You see, okay, all very important when you start talking about the importance of what Pentecost is all about. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit which is the love shared between the Father and the Son. Think about that. Sleep on that one. We have been given the gift that is that perfect eternal exchange of love, the Holy Spirit. The Trinity simply defined in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is love given, love received, love shared. And so it is right that if we are going to share in God's very life and love, he gives us the very gift of shared love. As we wrap up our program this evening, my friends, I really want to encourage you, all of you out there, wherever you may be, in and out of the state of California, in and out of the country of the United States, wherever you may be, however you may be accessing this program, I really want to encourage you to invoke the name of the Holy Spirit. Invite him into your life. He will not only come to your aid, defend, be your advocate, but above all else, he will draw you deeper into a friendship with Jesus Christ, giving you a deeper understanding of the mission of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer where we invoke the name of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, come through the most powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary and enkindle within us the fire of thy love. Enkindle within us a deeper understanding of the mission that Jesus Christ wishes to accomplish for the sake of mankind, that we first might enter more deeply into our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, with you at our side, that out from that friendship with Christ we might better understand what it means to exist for other, and that great commandment to love in truth. 
and all these things we pray. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.